romance is killing couples. Romance is good, but it's, it's not the end of it all. You just heard from Sylvia Dutkevich. She is a trained psychotherapist and founder of Critical Therapy Institute. In today's episode, we will be discussing concepts like power and how it is perceived in your relationship, as well as how to negotiate your power dynamics, live by the values that you preach, and practice what you believe in. Welcome to La Vida, Love Vitamins for a Healthier Relationship, a podcast made by partners for partners. This is Rashi. And this is Ansh. I have a little something to share. Here's a new pitch for Lovita that I'm working on. Small doses of love for you and your partner. Not something you can shove for it takes time to foster. These love pills, pretty easy to swallow, would mean a lot if this podcast you follow. Promise to keep this digestible for your time is not free. A conversation we enable even if you disagree. Listen carefully. Be aware. You might like something here. If you do, with someone you care, please do share. We bandage the takeaways for you know who. Yes, every Friday for you and your boo. Join us with your stories. Leave a review. Together we inspire even if it's only a few. Sylvia Dudkiewicz is a trained psychotherapist and founder of Critical Therapy Institute. She created critical therapy because she perceived a need for theory and the practice of psychology to reflect how race, class, gender, and religion intersect with psychological conflict. Thank you, Sylvia, so much for joining us. If you would like to just take a few moments to introduce yourselves and tell our listeners what you do. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. I think it's a very important message that you're sending out there about relationships and couplehood. I am a psychotherapist and uh, I am also the founder of the Critical Therapy Institute in New York City. But at the heart, I am a psychotherapist. How does your work in psychotherapy and critical therapy affect your own personal relationships? Oh, I think I have learned so much from my patients and from the people that I see and work with about relationships, about intimacy, about love. I also will say I am a therapist and I really believe in the transformative power of of therapy. I was in therapy and I do believe that therapy saved my life. I was a horrible partner before therapy. So I've learned how to be with others. And when you're a psychotherapist and you do this work, You have the opportunity of always looking and challenging yourself, your beliefs, what you stand for, how you treat others, what you bring to the table. So my work always informs me and informs the world that I live in. And I'm grateful that I get to do that every day. I love that therapy has played such a critical role, not only in your professional life, but in your personal life. You talk a lot about how therapy helps an individual understand themselves, but how do we leverage not only working on ourselves as individuals, but also leveraging that kind of insight and growth and knowledge to understand our partners better? One of the things that I realize, and this is one of the reasons I created critical therapy that's a little different than traditional therapy, is that most people go to therapy and because of the way therapists have been trained, it's usually only a one-sided relationship. So you go to therapy, you talk about yourself and, you know, it's great. You have all this insight and and then you're like, wow, I think I'm healed. Now I'm ready to have a relationship. And then you go out there 
And you can't have a good relationship because nowhere else in the world is it all about you. So Mm. I think part of good therapy is to teach us and to teach our patients how to be in relationship with another, how to share space, how to share power. I think power is the biggest thing that happens in relationship dynamics. And it is really not analyzed, it's not talked about it. We kind of shy away from power. We don't want to look at it, which is the missed opportunity. So therapy can offer you the space to learn how to be with another and a blueprint for a relationship where you learn how to communicate. You learn how to ask questions. You learn about your partner's desires. You learn about your own desires. You learn how to negotiate. When should an individual look into therapy? Like, Is it something that you would recommend for everyone or are there certain signs and signals within a relationship that you would suggest that, okay, these are the things that are showing up, you should look into therapy as an option? Obviously, because I'm a therapist, I would say anyone and everyone would benefit from therapy. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone needs to be in therapy forever. I think there's different spaces and different timeframes depending on what you're struggling with. I think when you feel that something in your life is not quite working, when you keep doing the same thing and get the same results and yet you're frustrated, I also have to add that we're coming out of a pandemic that required us to be isolated, that required us to be alone, that required very little interaction with new people. So now more than ever, we need therapy. Now more than ever, we also need a public space to discuss the grief the losses we've suffered. And yet as not only in the United States, but I think all over the the world, we're not doing a good job creating spaces where people can talk about what we've survived. We've Mm -hmm. survived something and we're pretending that it didn't happen. Can we just go Mm -hmm. back to normal? And Mm -hmm. as we know from trauma, trauma cannot be ignored. If it's ignored, it it will come back in weird ways in our lives. It's important to have a space to grieve and to talk about the many people that we've lost. Some people lost their homes, depending on your economic status. COVID was a real traumatic event. You said earlier about how critical therapy can be a blueprint for learning how to talk and build relationships with other people in your life. That's a very beautiful concept and you're absolutely right. It can tend to be the missing gap between therapy or self-help, the way we see it today and the way it would truly benefit us um, in terms of application to our life rather than right. a just being like a deep dive into yourself, truly helping you apply and transfer those skills into the other domains. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about what you've seen in terms of how power shows up, as well as if you could talk a little bit about what can people do at home to help themselves in a similar situation. Sure. I'm going to get to power in a second. I do want to come back to something you've said about self-help. Especially in the United States, we have taken self-help to another level that is actually not conducive to a healthy relationship because Mm -hmm. the focus has become on ourselves again. Mm -hmm. And that's important. I think it's important that we take care of ourselves. I think it's important that we create spaces where we feel loved and we relax. But sometimes we are taking that to the extreme of not being able to negotiate with others not being Mm. able to help others because now it's all about us. So Mm. I think capitalism does a good job at this. We take this nice concept and then we capitalize on it, make it as transactional as possible, and then do these five things and focus on your self-help rather than focus on how you can be a catalyst for change. 
and how mm -hmm. you can change the world or your relationships. So to go back to power. So power is a very important aspect of critical therapy. And the reason is that there's power in every relationship, especially couples. Couples always want to be equal. Everything's equal. Nothing is ever equal ever in our world. But mm. power is not a bad thing. What mm. makes power a bad thing is that the models that we've seen in our society are always models of power over someone. I have power, I'm going to use it to manipulate you. I have power, I'm your boss, you have to do that. I have power, usually traditionally, is I'm your husband in a heterosexual relationship, I get you to do this for me. But power can be something that we share together. And depending on our race, class, or gender, our relationship to power inside the world and outside is different. So we'll always be more or less powerful than others. We need to learn how to negotiate that. So because of that, I figured therapy should be one place where people investigate, interrogate, and learn how to share power. So in critical therapy, and there's stages to it, is the first stage is very much a traditional model of therapy where you come in as the patient and you see me as the therapist, as the person who has power. You invest power in me. And we do that because it's very easy that, then to figure out what is your relationship to power? What's your relationship to your family? It's transference, meaning you transfer onto us all these other things that you've had in your life. And we analyze that. But then as we move towards like a second stage, we start what the feminists called in the 70s, like critical consciousness raising. We start mm -hmm. asking questions and we bring in our unique identities and history influence our relationship to power. Now, mm. one other thing to be cognizant of is that especially for people who have been disempowered, power is not mm -hmm. something that's given to you. Power is something that you have to claim. You have to assert. You have to learn how to reckon with it. So in critical therapy, part of the dynamic that happens between the therapist and the patient is we have these conversations. We look at our identities, my identity, your identity as a patient inside and outside the clinical hour and how that influences who we are and how we show up. And after mm -hmm. we do all that and we question why you believe the things that you do and how do you use power and how do those beliefs impact your daily life, then we learn how to create a more collaborative space. And as I often say, if you're able to do it in here, then you're able to do it out there in your life. Mm. I don't think I'd ever thought about power as something that can be a form of being shared and leveraged for negotiation. You're right. The most common assumption and understanding of power does tend to be of dominance or of right. subordination, like loss of power. I'm interested to know what can people do at home to become aware of their power statuses and their power struggles so that they can lead into power negotiations? Well, the first thing is to really shift our understanding of power is not something bad. Because if it's something bad, it's something we don't want to have. And then when we have it, we pretend we don't have it. And that gets really problematic, especially mm -hmm. for couples. Also, the way to, to think about that is if we sh shift our frame and think power means responsibility. Mm -hmm. I have a responsibility to you rather than I have power I exerted over you. So I think especially for couples, but parents as well. I mean, parents, we do not do a good job sharing power with our children. It's always power over. Do what I say. Why are you talking back? 
why you ended up negotiating with me. And it's fascinating to me that we treat children like that for a good part of their lives. And yet when they become young adults, we tell them, learn how to negotiate and have a healthy relationship. Although you haven't practiced it ever, but good luck. So I think if we want to be better partners, if we have to have better families, we have to change the way we parent. We have to change the way we show up in couplehood, especially for heterosexual relationships. There's so much around power. There's so many stereotypes that we embody without even thinking. And what I've seen with a lot of couples is even in those relationships where men think that they're being helpful and they really want to help, the moment that they say, I want to help out is the moment you distance yourself from the relationship because you're not helping out. You're actually in the relationship. It's part of your sort of community. I'm not doing dishes for you. I'm doing the dishes for us because we both ate. And I think we need to shift the way we talk. Language is powerful. And I challenge you when you're with couples to see how they talk about things that they do rather than I am doing this as a gift to you or I'm doing this because I love you or I'm doing this because I live here and I should vacuum sometimes. It's usually I'm doing this for her and and this is going to make her happy. So the responsibility of doing the household chores is still with the woman. He's just helping out. You're talking a lot about communication. So I'm curious, how does this play effect when there are people coming from different races or different backgrounds, people who have different communication styles? How do they interact and how do they identify these problems? Because I might be saying something else, but if my partner comes from a different culture, they might be reading it as some other way. That's an excellent question. I often say people hide behind culture. So a couple of things. We all have very different identities and we all have very different intersectionality of our experience in the world. Whether you're a woman, whether you're a person of color, whether you're heterosexual, whether you're rich or not. And all those things matter in relationships. And by talking about them, by not erasing the differences, but embracing them, that we could have deeper conversations. But that is just like... Therapy 101, you and me, interpersonal. There is another layer that needs to be addressed, which is how society views us. How society views me as a man, for example, in a relationship with you as a woman. How the fact that I have more money than you impacts our dynamic in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just us in a bubble. There's also the world that impacts and influences our relationship. And... What I say about culture is that sometimes the most atrocious like things happen in the name of culture. Think mm-hmm. about the way that traditionally women have been subordinated by men and that was cultural. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what we do it back home. Okay, that doesn't mean that's good. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we should keep doing it. So I think it's important to always question ourselves. What are the traditions we want to keep? that enhance our life, that makes us more lovable, that builds community, rather than these traditions that we're keeping that actually impacts the way we show up in a very negative way. Mm -hmm. As you're talking about traditions, I'm thinking a lot about 
how oftentimes we tend to anchor more strongly because we think that it's an integral part of our identity. And if、mm -hmm. we don't anchor more deeply into them and hang on with dear life, then I am going to make my parents not proud of me, or forget where I came from, or not be able to teach my children these things that were important when I was growing up. But you're absolutely right; it's about distilling the parts that are important from those traditions and then negotiating. With your partner or whoever you're living with, what you actually want to preserve—that's very beautiful. I'm also wondering, how does one begin the process of negotiating? Well, one of the things that I don't think we are doing a good job in our society today is learning how to listen to another、mm. person. It's、mm -hmm. about I'm going to tell you what I want, and hopefully you agree, and then we're on the same page. And if we don't, then this is not going to work out. And I've seen this, especially in dating, especially with online dating. People keep picking the same people because you're not actually challenging yourself, and then、mm -hmm. you get the same results and are disappointed. Before we can negotiate, we have to be open to having a dialogue. We have to be open. I have to be open if I want to engage with you to、mm -hmm. really listen to you. And what I say to couples a lot is to really be more charitable. When、mm -hmm. you hear something from your partner. You have an ethical decision. Am I going to believe the best in this person, or am I going to believe the worst? So,、mm -hmm. if you start from "I'm going to believe the best," and although you said something that bothers me, maybe you didn't mean it that way. So let me clarify. Oh, by the way, when you said that, did you mean this, or because it didn't sit well with me? Or、mm -hmm. I could choose to believe the worst in you, and then be like, "I can't believe you said this. This is what you always do," and then we shut down the conversation. So I think it's important to be charitable and say I'm going to start this conversation with my best intention, and also believe that you and I are on the same team. You do not want to strike me down. You don't want to win your argument. You want both of us to win. Because if you enter a conversation with how can we both win, then you're not defensive. You're not like, well, I got to get my way. Because if I don't get my way, forget it. That's it. I lost. And then it's all about winning and losing. But couples usually don't talk about being on the same team, and you see this in couples therapy. Sometimes they sit and they come, and we're talking, and it's beautiful. And all of a sudden, it's a battle of who's right or wrong.、Mm -hmm. And what I often ask them is, "Do you want to be right, or do you want to be understood?" That's hard because we we don't practice that, and I think we need to do a better job. And the other thing is that you have to. Always start from talking about yourself. We tend to, especially with couples, and especially if there's a conflict, you did this, and when you did this, I didn't. As opposed to, I felt this way. We don't use I statements. It's always you, and we don't listen. What I often tell people when, especially if there's a conflict, is, "Can you tell me what you heard me say?" And most of the times, it's not what you've said. It's all about interpreting what I've said instead of saying. Maybe you need a sweater. It's oh, so you don't think I dress well? Clearly, you think better. It's like no, I just was wondering if you want to take a sweater. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I love that. I love that the prerequisite to even getting to negotiation is being able to have a dialogue, and the prerequisite to being able to have a dialogue is realizing that you're on the same team and being charitable to your partner and knowing that they are coming from this understanding that they're on your side. They're not against you. We are having a moment of difficulty here, but it doesn't have to be the end of the world. This ties back to something you mentioned earlier, which is that we really have to change the language that we're using at home. And you're absolutely right because that distills down into all of the smaller interactions that we have in the day. And a concept that I like very much is the emotional bank account. 
all of these little transactions either add to your emotional bank account and then you can leverage that shared foundation to continue having some more difficult conversations leading into negotiation. Otherwise, a lot of the times we're chipping away at that bank account without even realizing it. And then we enter into this deficit. So it's absolutely a fundamental way of, I think, starting this this much longer, maybe slightly more difficult process called negotiation. But the prerequisite for it is our bread and butter or everyday aspect yeah. of living in a relationship. Do you think it helps couples communicate better when they have like a shared vision or shared goals that they would be talking towards? Can you talk a little more on that? What I discovered about couples is this. Opposites attract, but they may not stay together. What's important is not that you're similar in what you do and how you do things. What's important is that you have similar values. Mm -hmm. And this is how sometimes you get people who seem like opposites, but actually make it work. And that's because deep down, they have the same vision of the world mm -hmm. and the world they want to live in. So what's important is how do you see the world? What does happiness look like for you? Because if you're someone who's like, well, happiness for me is having a stable home and doing, taking vacations, if we can do that and so forth, that's great. If you find someone who's like, happiness for me is having tons of money and going to 5,000 parties throughout the year, then it's probably not going to work out because you have mm -hmm. very different ideas of what you want in life. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for people to talk about those things and to sort of like when they start dating, although dating is another thing altogether. I think we've, <laughs> dating is, is horrible. We talk about power sharing. I think people are so inauthentic when they're dating because of all the romantic comedies we've seen. And it's mm -hmm. always about, well, do I call now? No, I should wait an hour. Where <laughs> nowhere else, if you made a friend at a party, would you be like, I can't text Susie right now. She might think I'm too interested. I'm going to wait till <laughs> tomorrow to ask her for coffee. So it's amazing to me. And I think, unfortunately, what happens because we have these scripts around dating mm. is that we're not present, mm. especially for heterosexual couples. When they go out on a date, Men know that they're supposed to look really interested, try to pursue some sort of kissing. I mean, I've heard people who said, well, if I don't kiss her, she's going to think I don't like her. I have to do it. So now I'm all in my head about this half through the night. I'm not even paying attention to you. Whereas women are all about, well, I have to look interested, but not too interested. I have to say no, but maybe I want yes. So basically, no one is really present. No one is doing what they're feeling. It's not an intentional setting. Is we need to follow these outdated scripts that don't work because we've seen a ton of romantic comedies and read so many books about how this should look like. Mm -hmm. And it never looks like that. All around us, we hear, oh, this is how things should be. You talk to your friends and they reinforce a lot of these stereotypes. And then that makes you even more confused because I think a lot of the times when we're scared of being our authentic selves, we do look outside for what kind of mirrors and echoes back. And that can sometimes be a good thing. But I've also realized just from my personal experience that it can kind of be a dangerous thing depending on the environment that you're keeping as well. Because mm -hmm. sometimes the environment that you're keeping is not actually an authentic representation of what you have on the inside, or perhaps the true values that you're harboring on the inside, but it's still echoing remains of other parts of you. And what I would say about values is I often asked all my patients this and my coworkers, how do you live out your values? A lot of people have a lot of values, but they actually don't practice them. Mm -hmm. And I think especially in relationships, 
we all want to be collaborative, but we're not. You know, mm. what, how do we embody those things that we say we admire or we strive to be, mm-hmm. and yet we don't do? Because you can't yeah. have a value if you don't live it. I'm sorry. That's just like some idea or in your head, yeah. which is wonderful, right. but you need to embody it. Mm-hmm. We always say practice what you preach and preach what you practice because if you don't talk about what you want to do, you'll probably never get to it. Mm-hmm. So it goes both ways. I, I do want to ask about when you mentioned that opposites attract, but they don't usually last forever. I guess it's, it's because there are conflicts which are going to come up eventually in, in couples because their beliefs are different, because their values are different. But there's some amount of conflict which is healthy as well. You don't want to be completely alike. So can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, two things. The first one is, I believe that the people we choose in relationships reflect something about ourselves we're working through. So whenever someone says, well, I'm in this relationship and it's all their problem, I'm great. I remind people, but you picked this person for a reason. And the reason is because we're attracted to those things that we haven't quite mastered or understood. And this is one of the reasons I say it's important that you reckon with yourself and know who you are. Because the healthier you are, the healthier your relationship is. It's a dynamic. It's always between two or more people. It's never just, it's me. I'm great. This person's the problem. You're in it. As far as conflict, what I often also say to people is that what makes a good relationship is not the absence of conflict. That's not possible. You know, you meet these couples are like, we don't really have any conflict. Maybe <laughs> not, but I'm sure they disagree about something. I mean, that seems unhealthy to me. Like, you all agree on everything? What's <laughs> happening there? But there's going to be conflict. It's how we deal with that conflict that talks about the quality of the relationship. Mm-hmm. How much Do you engage in it in a way that's, again, collaborative and healthy? How much are there things that you could just let go but don't because it's important to win? And sometimes there are things that are really painful to discuss and may have hurt you. And it is important to talk about it because that's how you move on. Mm -hmm. So, no, it's not the absence of conflict, but rather the quality of your conflict. When you were talking, it reminded me of something I think I read a while ago, which said that I find in you what I seek in me. So Mm -hmm. it's like your partner is a mirror or a representation of the things that you're working through. And that makes me think about conflicts as almost a little bit of a light shining on the things that need work. It's almost like you're, you're shining a really bright light on either processes within you or processes in your relationship that have some growing to do. And so conflict, like you said, it can be a healthy place to get curious and do Mm -hmm. some deeper diving in yourself and in your relationship, as long as we do what you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is come with this intention to listen, to understand not only the other, but ourselves. And that tends to be the missing ingredient in conflicts, at least what I've noticed in, in our relationship is sometimes things are very emotional and you get very heated up when you're talking and you forget to get curious until maybe a little while later. Something that we practice is that even if in that moment, the conflict didn't go ideally. It ended up resulting in raised voices and behavior that's not what we would aspire to live by. Come back to it. Like revisit that conversation from a healthier place, from a healthier emotional state, because there's still some work that needs to be done there. It's lovely. And I think when you're in the midst of conflict, if you're so activated, I think it's your responsibility to also say, this is too much for me right now. I need a timeout. 
And then to really reckon with yourself, what is happening for me? Because sometimes it's not even about what is happening in the moment. It's about, again, all your history and all the things that you're associating with this conflict. So if you have that space, you can realize, well, maybe this is not really about you. Maybe this is about how when I was 12, my mom said this and you sound just like her right now. And I never resolved that because I think it puts a different spin on things. Um, and it's important to take a pause and come back and also be open to being wrong. I know we, mm -hmm. we don't do a good job in our society, especially now. It's like sound bites. And if you said something 20 years ago, somehow you were never supposed to be wrong. It's like, no, people are wrong. And then they change their yeah. minds as part of being human. Yeah. We've been playing with this exercise called practice to fail, where intentionally you're supposed to lose <laughs> like <laughs> a game or a challenge or a conversation or a debate because just getting comfortable with failing is sort of going to help you with being okay with being wrong. Oh, I love that. We shouldn't do that in our schools because we don't do a good job teaching our kids to do that. We say that to them like, oh, sure, and it's okay to be wrong. And yet we're like, did you get an A? Why didn't you get an A? What do you know, you have to take 10 prep courses to get to college. You need to do well. I would love that practice to fail. Right, because it helps you understand that it's okay. You don't have to take it as a rock against your identity, as a shocking right. thing that, oh my God, I was wrong. It can just be a normalized aspect. And I think the, one of the most interesting things that I've started to realize is that we can understand something and fail to apply it. Like theoretically, things make a lot of sense and you will agree with it. You'll read it in a book, listen to it in a podcast. Everyone will be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it comes time to apply it and it's hard. And that's where this visceral element of practicing what you preach, creating an environment in your relationship where you're able to actually work through these challenges. That's the missing component, I think, that differentiates between relationships and relationships that are working to become healthier and help each other grow. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think one of the problems about that is that our values, which is really what we would like to believe, are sometimes passed down from our culture in a way we are not even aware of. That's mm -hmm. ideology, which is something that we hear these messages. We're like, no, I don't believe in that. I believe in this. And yet we live out those things that we actually don't believe. Sylvia, what do you do to build a healthier relationship? What do I do? Well, a couple of things. I think my work helps me. Like was, we sort of come back to where I started. It helps me be a better person with every person that I see for therapy. I challenge myself to be, to learn and to challenge my own beliefs. And I have learned from my many failed relationships how to be in a good relationship. One of the many things I've learned from my failed relationships is not to focus on getting there or this is the one relationship that's going to last forever. Because mm. the fantasies we create about this relationship, no one can live up to that. Mm. It's really about being present in the moment. Mm. And, and I think therapy has taught me how to truly love another person. You mm. love another person not because you're going to be with them forever. You love another person for the moments that you're with them. So I often say this, I'm in a relationship now for a lot of years, and even now, after so many years, I still say, well, I hope we make it. Because <laughs> to be certain means that I'm taking this person for granted. To be certain mm -hmm. means that I'm not open to the possibilities that it may not work out. And it's mm -hmm. also to be tied to the relationship because of what it gives me rather than to the person. And I think that that's really hard. And it's really hard to 
love someone without having an invested interest in the outcome. And therapy mm-hmm. teaches you how to do that very well. It's like, mm-hmm. I love you. And whatever you do, I'm going to support you rather than I love you because you're going to do this, this, and that. It's challenging because we have been taught to believe in like you get married and you're this idea of safety. Somehow safety is more important than presence or intention. I deeply admire my partner. I think sometimes people forget that in relationships, that it's important that you're with someone that you feel inspired by. Right. Rather than comfortable. Mm -hmm. Comfortable is important, but it's also about how do we grow together? And I will Mm -hmm. say this because I have this pet peeve about this idea that happy relationships equals lasting forever. And if you break up after 10 years, you didn't have a successful relationship. That is not Mm -hmm. true. I think there are people out there who have had 10, 25 year relationships and done a great job. Then they break up. It doesn't mean it wasn't a good relationship, although we've been taught to poo poo it like, oh, that was not. It's like, well, you were happy five years. It worked. That's great. And there is this ingredient which we can't control for is the ability to grow together. We could try. If we're lucky enough, it's probably going to be okay. But some people mm-hmm. grow separately. And being able to admit that at some point and to say, I love you and this was a great relationship, but we have changed so much that we mm-hmm. want different things. And mm-hmm. I wish people knew how. We don't know how to break up well. No, we don't. It causes so much pain and a deep breaking within. And I think that there is a component of mourning. I think you are Mm -hmm. allowed to mourn this shift, this loss, this perceived loss or identity change. But the concept of it then being tied to your worth and your well-being, that's a component that's not that work, I would say miscoupling, like it doesn't need to be correlated to the the breaking up of a relationship because you're absolutely right. People change and being able to admit that, you know what, we are now growing in different directions is the healthiest thing that you can do for yourself and to preserve that friendship or mm-hmm. to say salute, thank you for X amount of years. And I, I respect and I love that. And you've given this huge gift to me. Now it is time for a new chapter in my life. It's a very difficult thing to do, but I think there are many steps that we can take along the way to make that journey just a little bit easier. I just wanted to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for the work that you do. I think it's very inspiring and very necessary for our society. I'm very eager to learn more and I will be connecting with you online so that we can keep in touch. (laughs) Cool. Thank you so much for having me. I love that you guys are talking about what it means to be in couple and that it's not always beautiful and sometimes it's great. And sort of like keeping it real. I think a lot of us forget how to keep it real. Romance is killing couples. Romance is good, but it's it's not the end of it all. Yes, I love that. I love that. Let's start awesome. with that. Romance is killing couples. And then we'd be like, but hold on. There's always a silver lining. <laughs> or the other way is like we need to redefine how romance looks like. You can reach out to Sylvia through the website criticaltherapy.com. You can connect with her through email or her Instagram account, and we will include all the links in the show notes below. If you enjoyed listening to what you just heard, please share with your partner, friend, or someone who you think would enjoy as well. Please make sure to tag us on social media at Lovita Love Vitamins so we can follow you and also reshare it. For more details on this episode and other tools, frameworks, and resources, visit lorita.blog. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you next week.